Hello, dear friends. Welcome back to Love Service Wisdom. (sighs) It's been a while since I've put one of these out, months and months, since January, I believe, when I had a solo cast. And here we are nearing the end of July 2022, and I'm back at it. I am with the author, the mystic, the teacher, John David Leda. He has a new book out, The Synchronicity of Love, where he shares these extraordinary stories of what happened to him when he hit rock bottom bottom in his life, and then what happened when he threw himself into practices of unconditional love, and what unfolded from there, how his life changed, deep mystical experiences, and as you can guess from the title, Synchronicity of Love, the synchronicities that started to happen. So we talk about essentially what's what happened as a kundalini awakening for him, which was fascinating to hear firsthand, and um, go into other subjects like relationships and vulnerability and honesty and growth, essentially. And it was just a treasure to have this conversation with John. So you can find his book, Synchronicity of Love, on you know the platforms for the things. And also go to John David Lada, L-A-T-T-A dot com. You can find him on Instagram, the same John David, maybe it's Lada versus Lada. I have a friend, Michaela Lada here in Boise. She's been on the podcast, but this is perhaps John David Lada. Anyways, go to him, check out his book. It's really inspiring. It's kind of like open it up and read a beautiful short story that is filled with like the bhav, the essence, the feeling you can get from reading it like you can from other spiritual texts. So thank you, John, for being on this podcast and for helping me get back into the world of podcasting. I so enjoyed it again this time with you. And let's see, my own life, I, um, I've i got a training coming up the weekend of July 29th, Friday, Saturday, Sunday here in Boise actually just outside of Boise and Nampa, but it's on Intro to Yoga Bodywork. And it's only a 20-hour weekend module, but we'll talk about how to give really great hands-on assists, hands-on touch in your yoga classes or with your private clients. But I'll have someone, Rachel Burke, who's a dear friend and an AMA therapist, come in and talk about traditional Chinese medicine and lines of energy and professionalism in those touch practices. And then Crystal Moore, who's also just an incredible healer, body worker, Reiki master. She's going to come in and share with us about Reiki. So a diverse weekend. We'll also learn the principles of pranasage, which is the modality I'm trained in through the Nosara Yoga Institute. Don St- or sorry, not Don. Amba, Don's wife, Amba Stapleton's body of work on pranasage. So we'll learn all about that in this intro to yoga bodywork uh, in-person training just coming up in a couple weeks, July 29th. So if you want to learn more about that, there's an Eventbrite page, but you could also just email me as always. You can send it to rada, R-A-D-H-A at eastforest.org. And uh, we can talk about it. Just message me. I've had a number of Radha Krishna roundtables come out on the East Forest 10 Laws podcast since or between January and now. So if you want to catch up on what's been going on, maybe you could find those over on the 10 Laws with the East Forest podcast. But beyond that, life's been busy and full and wonderful and amazing. And I'm so grateful that it's summer and I'm going to take as many opportunities as I can to enjoy nature and outside and just getting basically as hot as I can. When everybody else is complaining about the heat, I'm like just getting into my favorite zone. So (sighs) wishing all of you that same sense of perfect satisfaction in your daily life as we ebb and flow through these ups and downs as gracefully as we can. And uh, listening to this podcast will help. We talk about kind of just that topic as well, the graceful ebbs and flows of transition and change. So with that, my friends, I'm going to give you this podcast, this beautiful conversation with John Leda. 
Welcome, John, to Love Service Wisdom. I'm really um, grateful that you've reached out to be a guest on the show. It's been a while since I've put a podcast out. I kind of redid my podcast gear and then found that I wasn't recording anything. And so it was a good, it just came at the right moments to kind of just be like, just figure it out again. Just do it. And so here we are. I'm super happy to be here. Yeah. Yeah. I was, you know, you sent me your book, Synchronicity of Love, Mm -hmm. which is really beautiful, beautiful title, totally spot on with so many things. And um, it reminded me a lot of bhakti, bhakti yoga. Are you familiar with bhakti yoga? Yeah. In fact, I thought I was going down that path for a while. As a bhakti yogi? It ended up being kind of more of a dalliance thing, but I ended up being drawn to a lot of books, a lot of bhakti teachers. and met some beautiful people, and yeah, I really, really, yeah, I agree. That, that is kind of the flavor behind everything. Yeah, it's like everyday bhakti Yeah, is what yeah. you're distilling in the book. Yeah. The path of devotion and love. Yeah. What teachers did you come across when you were doing that studying or in your, well, <clears throat> in your journey? So, you know, uh, you probably gather from the title, the synchronicity of love, what I was really trying to explore is the more you explore the path of love, the more synchronicity start to just unfold. And um, so there's a little spiritual bookstore called Soul Food Books that, like so many bookstores, it's something else now, it's Soul Food Coffee. <laughs> and, uh, and there was an Indian saint coming. Um, I think his name was Radhanath Swami. And, um, and I thought, well, I'll go down and see this guy. And, and he was following the path of bhakti and the book that had just come out that he was promoting, um, I think it was called The Journey Home, was about him as a young person seeking a teacher. He traveled all across Europe, followed his guidance, ended up in India. And um, I forget his teacher's name, but that's who he ended up studying with. And then he in turn became a Swami. It was funny, he was a little, little Jewish boy from Chicago named Richie. But, and I didn't know that because he's dressed in robes, his head is shaved. Oh my God, he just exuded a sweetness that was beyond belief. Mm-hmm. And um, and interestingly, this little coffee shop that might get 20 or 30 people to see a speaker was bursting at the seams. Hundreds of people, they were flowing out the door. And in this part of the country, uh, I'm actually in Redmond, Washington, uh, an enormous number of Indian people have moved here in the last couple of decades. They all knew who he was. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so that's one example. And um yeah, quite a few various authors that I read the books and just, I think uh, part of the journey of the heart was exploring that path of bhakti. Yeah. Within that, as part of your own practice, do you have particular gurus or teachers or deities or saints that you feel the most connected to? Ooh, that's a good question. <clears throat> um. That has changed over time. And in fact, that's been, if I had one thing I wish somebody had told me at the beginning, it was uh, that there is no beginning, middle, and end. (laughs) I kind of have a beginning, middle, and end mindset. And every time I thought I settled, it would open up to something else. And so um, my very first teacher was Dr. William Brew Joy. Uh, He went by the name, his middle name, Brew and uh, wrote a bestseller in the late 70s and had tons of people coming to his conferences and workshops. But he said all he taught was heart-centered meditation. That's all it was. He taught it to his beginning students, his advanced students, his advanced, advanced, advanced students. And it really was uh, centering in that place of divine love. And so over the last 20 years, yes, there has been one saint after another, after another, one author after another that I just feel kind of, I would be swooning over. And then it was time to move on to the next one. Mm-hmm. So looking back, you know, you don't see these things, you're in it, but in retrospect, I think there was sort of a, I, I didn't see it happening, a progressive, now we're going to integrate this into your life. Now we're going to integrate this into your life. <clears throat> um, if you saw in my book, I went through that Kundalini phase that was so intense so beautiful, terrifying sometimes. And my entire inner world was full of goddesses. There was never any one. I mean, everything from 
earthy, fiery, you know, ethereal. Uh, I just could barely close my eyes. I was bombarded with goddesses. (laughs) Wow. And so I had that very, um, some have described Kundalini energy as balancing energy, I thought was interesting. But from a male perspective, as a man who identified with the masculine, uh, this sort of other side of myself was coming through. So <clears throat> that was my experience of it. Like, oh, I had completely neglected what I would loosely call the feminine side of myself. And boy, it came crashing through the Kundalini. Hmm, the Shakti, right? Yes. And so I was in love with that for a long period of time. I mean, if you want to know who I worshipped, I don't know if worship is the right word, but very, very felt attracted to and devoted to. Uh, yeah, the Kundalini Shakti. And it was, like I said, an enjoyable, enthralling, sometimes harrowing and terrifying time of my life. Well, give me an example of that. I want to hear more about that terrifying, enthralling time in your life. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Yeah, I'll give you two examples. And so, you know, part of the thing I tried to weave into my book was I was also a single dad with custody of two kids living a normal life, too. And so the energy got to be so intense and would go on for as long as I let it night after night that I would frequently be exhausted and hardly be able to get through the day. What do you mean the energy would go on, though, night after night? What was that like? Um, Well, yeah. So what it would feel like to me was I'd tuck my kids in bed and i go to sleep. And about an hour after I'd gone to bed, the energy would come. And with the energy would come, you name it. I I would wake up in strange yoga positions. I would be doing things with my hands, moving the energy. And I didn't even practice yoga at the time. Um. And I have frequently all sorts of visual activity. So how did you uh, get into that, though? Was it through a particular modality? You say you weren't practicing yoga or like a a Shakti pot, like a dart, like a like an initiation. um, I don't remember receiving formal Shakti pot from anybody, but I did Mm. spend quite a bit of time with Brujoy at the beginning. but mostly I was just practicing heart-centered meditation on my own. So, and, wow. and interestingly, Radha, um, a week before the onset of it, I had a dream that seemed to be announcing it. And in the dream, I'm laying in the arms of Mother Nature herself, completely naked, on this beautiful late August afternoon. There's wildflowers blooming and the sun is setting in the distance. And she's got her hand between my legs, right in my perineum area. And she's doing something there. I don't know what. That was the end of the dream. Hmm. And then a week later, I'm in a hotel room in Philadelphia, all places. And that was the beginning of the energy. And it all the energy felt like it was, you know, starting in that root chakra perineum area. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Which feels like sexual energy. For me, it was unbelievably sexual, unbelievably powerful, and sometimes unbelievably blissful too. Yeah. Yeah. So then did you have experiences of it moving up from the root chakra? Yeah, the way it felt to me was like a soft explosion of orgasmic honey in my root chakra. And, and so it not only would go upwards, it would go outwards and permeate through my whole body. And it felt like such utter, soft, blissful pleasure. In the, in the early days, the energy was a little soft. It became much more intense within a month or two after that. But initially, it was just soft and beautiful. And it was like, oh, I don't know what this is. <laughs> but I'm a little bit scared, but I really don't want it to go away either. No, I'm sure it felt amazing. You kind of cling to it in a way. It's so pleasurable yeah. and exciting and fulfilling, <clears throat> satiating. Yeah, and I, um, I was a newbie to the journey. Um, and uh, literally had to email a bunch of people afterwards and say, what in the world is happening to me? And they said, well, it sounds like Kundalini rising. I'm like, well, what does that mean? I'd heard the word, but I had no idea what it meant. Well, it fully sounds like that. Coming back to your question earlier, I had gotten in the habit of coming home from work a half hour before my kids got home and got off the school bus, and I would take like a little mini nap. And the second I was closed my eyes, boom, and so some of the more harrowing experiences, uh, you know, 
and or beautiful. One was um, there's a goddess sitting on my tailbone and she's blowing a mighty wind through my whole body. And my experience of it is I can see every hair in my body flapping because my body's you know, extruding this magnificent wind and I couldn't move. I was completely paralyzed. And so thank God, like I said, I did meet some people and, you know, some people like, hey, you know, John, some people think this energy is a good thing, not anything to be afraid of. And so I learned to trust the journey. Um, and But had I not had those people to talk to and then which led me to some books, you know, I, I never went to the doctor. But if I hadn't <laughs> had that, I probably would have gone to the doctor. <laughs> gotten medicated for sure. What's that? And gotten medicated. Yeah, sadly. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that sounds what a um, kind of like a gnosis satori that it just comes out of nowhere and away from doing yeah. your heart centered meditations. And it's incredibly in line with Kundalini yoga and that aspect, that prana, that energy, the Shakti that's moving through you. You just have to trust it and, yeah. and set your mind aside. Yeah. And let it flow through you and do the mudras or the positions or the sounds or the expressions that's occurring. That that's yeah. that's God goddess moving through you, returning to source. That's it's exactly. incredibly psychedelic too. What's that? It's incredibly psychedelic. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like that in my experience where it's like you said, it's harrowing and terrifying and extremely blissful and ecstatic at the same time. You're holding that paradox in yeah. one moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I felt really, like I said, grateful that a lot of people just said, go with it. And I had looked up Brew afterwards, <clears throat> who had been my only real teacher at that point, and, and wisely didn't make a big deal of it. He said, just be patient with this development. And I'm glad he didn't make a big deal of it because it was a big deal, but I'm actually <laughs> glad he didn't make a big deal of it. So how did that transition lessen? Like what was the tail end of that like for you when it started to calm down or integrate? Well, so that was, again, another thing that I, I nobody told me in the spiritual journey that sometimes there's periods of waiting, emptiness, dispassion. And that actually was more difficult than the, harrowing energy that actually became kind of exciting after a while. And, um, <clears throat> and so I would say it was most intense for the first six months, but definitely started to wind down after about four years. Um, although I still experienced energy in ways I never used to prior to that, but it's definitely became more and more subtle over time. And that was probably the most difficult stage, it was not the visions and the energy and the unbelievably unexpectedness of it all. It was the winding down of it. I, saw, I just thought this was gonna continue the rest of my life and become grander and grander. Mm. And mm. so I've had to learn to understand that these things have a timing of their own. And um, yeah, and, and I, I since have read some other books, I think you might be familiar with Adya Shante and mm -hmm. you know, he, he likes to say in all my years of teaching, um, people sometimes go through a period of energy. It can be subtle, it can be grand and magnificent, but it tends to fade over time. And that was my experience. <clears throat> when it left then, it sounds like perhaps there was a feeling of loneliness or abandonment or maybe even too like, how do I get it back? What did I do wrong? What could I change so that it's here again? Just yeah, that. all of that. And since I didn't stumble into it through a practice, it was hard for me to go like, oh, I just need to go back and do this X again. Yeah. And um, yeah, and I think, um, I mean, <clears throat> in slow motion, it's like the downside of a high. It really mm -hmm. is. You know, it's just like any drug, alcohol, you know, the higher you go, sometimes there's a little bit of a, a low that feels like a hangover on the other side of it. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that was, like I said, that has been the most difficult part of the journey that to this day, I'm still learning to roll with. There are periods of time where what feels like the emptiness rolls in, the nothingness rolls in. I like the word dispassion, like, hmm. you know, I love that picture of you with Ram Das. You were talking about it off the air, just made my heart sing. Oh, there's a great little story somebody put together, a little talk he did on the dark night of the soul. And, uh, and he said, you know, 
all your friends still like to go bowling, but you don't like to go bowling anymore. <laughs> now what do you do? That's what it feels like sometimes. Yeah, there's a longing, perhaps. Yeah. Hmm. And you can't, yeah, there's not a formula that will consciously get you back there. You can't will no. it. What's that? It's, you can't will it. It's surrender and trust. Yeah. Yeah, you're exactly right. In fact, sometimes I think if you were to say, John, what's your practice today? It would be surrender and trust. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing all of that. It's incredible um, to hear that it just came to you too through doing your heart meditations mm -hmm. without, like you're saying, formal initiation or knowing that that's what you're going for or having a teacher give you certain practices that essentially this, this, the methodologies, if you open your heart anything is possible. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. And, <clears throat> you know, Bray taught heart-centered meditation and shadow work. And he was just, he just, that's really all he taught over and over again, heart-centered meditation, shadow work, making the unconscious conscious. And, um, and it, you know, that, um, that practice too bears fruit over time because I think <clears throat> um, one is less defended over time. And so shadow. I honestly think the energy wants to come through. And it's just like, is this person ready for this? And um, <clears throat> and so and I had I had worked very hard. I was a very sincere and earnest student. I was heart centering regularly. He used to say over and over again, you know, the ego likes this, but not that, but the heart center loves the whole show. And so it was sort of like moving slowly into that place where I could be open and love the whole show, not this, but not that. Hmm. But I think, and, and he would say sometimes when people go through these um, energetic experiences, he would just say, just return to the heart. The heart loves all, the heart loves the whole show. If you try to take the journey through the ego, it's going to be painful and suffer. Mm -hmm. And so it was, um, uh, it, it was the tool that I could fall back on over and over and over again. It was the resource I could fall back on over and over again. Yeah, which is what is needed as you've gone through your dispassionate phase after the passion yeah. of the Kundalini. If the heart loves the whole show, it also just loves the dispassionate phase as equally. <laughs> Yeah. Darn you. You're exactly right. <laughs> yeah. That took a while. Like, oh, it loves the nothingness too. Yes. It loves the nothingness too. It loves yeah. the waiting. It loves the patience. It loves the divine timing. Yes, it does. Yeah. And, you know, again, maybe you don't know tons about Kundalini, but the little bit that I know, right? Like the Shakti is that energetic, passionate, expression energy floods into and then shiva is the void and is yeah. stillness and that's the other polarity yeah and so in some ways you're simply just embodying now that other polarity of stillness oh that's void. beautifully said thank you yeah. yeah and then when you do that then there's the center right yeah so in some ways you're finding your way back to the balance of both after like that huge explosion of feminine. Yeah. You're in Shiva. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's funny. And I've I've been both drawn to it and resisted them at the same time. I had a gal tell me once, she goes, Oh, it's like you've got the words, but now you're figuring out the space between the words. And I said, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's actually kind of what it feels like. <clears throat> mm hmm The waiting, the stillness, yeah. the patience, the holding. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> Thank you, Ronald. <laughs> yeah, loving that too. How much can you love the stillness? Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny when you are identified with passion and action, that's, I mean, that's literally another polarity. The stillness, the dispassion, the waiting, the patience, 
that can be a difficult journey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But one that, at least I think too, when I zoom out to like our cultural energy also, one that's out of balance. We're less yeah. good with that. We're less good with stillness, release, also, also like death and dying, grief. Yeah. It's the go, go, produce, produce. Yeah. Create, create. Yeah. I hear you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So embodying it, you know, you're kind of leading the way. You're someone who's like, this is how it can be done. Yeah, thank you for saying that. It's funny, at the end of my book, my grand conclusion isn't that I walk around in a state of eternal bliss and God consciousness. Um, my grand conclusion was after all the kundalini and everything is a nice balance between masculine and feminine. It's not very dramatic or sexy, but I actually think it is something that the world would benefit from greatly. Not one or the other, but finding a nice balance. They both have their role. <clears throat> I remember when I was going through a lot of this, um, Bruce said, you know, I, I want you to encourage you to develop or open to this feminine side of yourself, as well as the masculine side. You've got sort of the structured nature of reality down pat, um, because you're going to ultimately be more whole and more resourceful and less limited. And I don't think a lot of people realize that they're operating with just from one pole, how much limited limitation they've imposed upon themselves. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, my grand conclusion was I'm more balanced than I used to be. More balanced. Yeah. Yeah. And it's somewhat also a flip, I feel anyways, from our natural inclination of what we think of as masculine and feminine, mm -hmm. right? Like we often think of the masculine's the active and the feminine's the waiter. Yep. The one that's waiting. Mm -hmm. But in this modality, it's different. Yeah, I think I think that's hysterically brought that up. I hate the term masculine and feminine because you're right, in this in this context, isn't Shakti the active principle? Yeah, and that's yeah, the feminine. But, yeah, a lot of people describe masculine as electric, doing, penetrating, action oriented, and the feminine as receptive and stillness. Mm -hmm. And so uh boy, and there are traditions that call earth feminine and earth masculine some call traditions call the sun feminine because it's warm and they say no it's masculine because it's energy and so i whatever there are polarities there and i think in the end i would encourage everybody to explore them both yes yeah under yeah. whatever names you have for them. right masculine or feminine we could get rid of those terms yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah you know when i first got your book and i was i loved that i could just like flip open to it and find a short story to read uh -huh. that feels complete in and of itself, yeah. you know, versus needing to read it from start to finish. And so <laughs> when I flipped it open, the story that I read was about your daughter and her journey with <laughs> substance abuse. Yes, And, you know, that really resonated with me because at this time I have an 18 year old daughter uh -huh. who's going off to college this fall. And she had a period a couple years ago that was similar, not mm -hmm. as extreme as yours, but where she was using alcohol and using substances. And her dad and I were struggling and kind of pulling her hair out and worried. And also you said a few times in your story how you, I can't remember the words you used, but you kind of downplayed it, you know, yeah. like it's not as bad as I think it is or, you yeah. know, whatever. And we Denial. did that. Denial. Thank you. That's the word. Denial. And kind of trusting her, you know, when she would say, oh, no, that's not mine. It's my friends. We're like, okay, we believe you. And then it's yeah. like, no, it's actually, that's all yours, I'm sure. And so it was very just helpful for me to read too, you know, your conclusion of it being that they'll get there, that this is part of their journey, yeah. that not all is lost, that they could be stubborn for years. And then as long as you're there, you know, your parent presence never goes away they can count on you yeah that stability and safety that they'll figure out how to write their own ship yeah uh, thank you that was all beautifully said that's <laughs> one of my favorite chapters in the book because that was one of the real life this world reality kind of stories too <clears throat> and yeah it was it was you know purely from the 
experience the human and or soul experience, you know, again, sometimes when you're going through, it feels like terrible, challenging, but in retrospect, sometimes, you know, those are some of the most beautiful growth build periods of your life too. And I, I loved that, um, you know, a couple of years later, there was a couple of local therapists that asked my ex-wife and I to come and speak to other parents whose kids were going through the same issues. And, and they were every bit as full of denial as I had been. <laughs> and, and we got to share our experience. And there was a lot of tears in the room. And it was actually really beautiful, too. Mm. And, um, yeah, my daughter is just this amazing, wise, old soul. Like, I just, just really extraordinary. And uh, drives her dad crazy because her path is never in a straight line. <laughs> is she still in college? Is she still at the TM University? Uh, no, so she um, catches that. Where is she now? Yeah. What's that? Where is she now? Well, um, she just left. She was living in upstate New York because after she left Maharishi University, she spent 18 months on a program called Mother Divine, uh, which I think is probably the equivalent of, of you know Hindu nun, hmm. and lived in Iowa, New Zealand, and upstate New York, and just decided she wanted to come back out into the real world again the real, real world. And she just moved to uh, Summerlin, Nevada, just outside of Las Vegas, literally three months ago, and is, is basically starting all over again. So, but the cool thing is, um, it's been uh, 11 years now, clean and sober, and not even the slightest hint of going back. It was just like, yeah, I've been there, done that, did that. You know, so... Yeah, went all in. Kind of had like your Shakti experience, but with substances yes. as a teen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, congratulations, because I know that's a that's a really hard one for so many parents and so many children now who suffer from substance abuse. It's just heartbreaking. Really it heartbreaking. is heartbreaking, and I consider myself one of the lucky ones because I, I was stealing myself for like, oh, my God, this could be like the rest of my life, you know, who knows? And I think every parent is always like, you know, tough love. Do I let them just figure it out on their own? Am I there for them? Do I support them? And I felt like I kind of walked that sort of middle path of just trying to be patient and present. Uh, she's very strong-willed, um, and if there was going to be any recovery, it would have to come from her. So. And thank goodness she chose it. Yeah. So kudos to her. What a brave, powerful soul to yeah. have gone through that and to see her, to see herself through the other side. Cause that's what often or seems like so often isn't able to happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard, you know, um, in, you know, I've been in management my whole life. I've been bossing people around literally since I was 18 and had tons of employees and tons of different circumstances. And, and many of them would say, I'm, I'm giving up weed. I'm quitting drugs. I'm, I'm quitting alcohol. And they're inspired and they're pumped and they go to AA meetings and, and they quit. But that's the easy part. Because a lot of times, especially if your life revolved around getting high all the time, revolves around drinking, uh, and it doesn't anymore. It's like everything that that that's called the structure you built around yourself dissolves. Your self identity has to change. A lot of times, your relationships, your friendships, your work, your hobbies have to change. That's when it gets hard, and that was difficult for her too. And looking back, I think it was just a lucky thing that she decided uh, when she decided to go back to school that she decided to go to Maharishi because she went from you know, living in a relatively urban area out to the cornfields of Iowa where they meditate take twice a day in golden domes. And she never really meditated before. She learned TM right before she went to school there. And uh, the school is small, but has students from 85 different nations there. Very multicultural, uh, quite a bit older in general. And boy, talk about starting from scratch. And so she spent the first year there <laughs> calling her dad about three times a week in tears and I think people who are new to meditating frequently are doing a lot of processing too. So, but in a way it was a great thing because when you're in the same town, you got the same friends, the same, the pull to go back to the old familiar lifestyle can be really difficult. Mm -hmm. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. You know, just even my own life too, just this weekend, I was talking about it with my partner where, you know, I'll drink alcohol 
but I'm, I consider myself a casual drinker, but I definitely notice that I enjoy drinking. For me, there's this funny thing about wanting, I'm the same way with coffee. Like I want to get my coffee in the morning, Mm -hmm. but it takes my, I might not even finish it. I might just have like two or three sips, but the getting of it is the thing that really, that's the pull the desire to have it. Same with like a drink. Like I'll think that I want to have a beer, for example, but then once I have the beer, the can of beer, I might not finish it. I might not, it'll, or it'll take me like three hours to finish drinking it, something like that. But there's the want to have it. So I was just talking with him about how, you know, I'm 43 and my life is changing. We were just down in Las Vegas for an event for him um, that was pretty like festival, party, play, enjoyment, which I love play in my life, but feeling and noticing myself just in a different place in relation to all of it. And so kind of processing with him, I think I'm transitioning. Mm -hmm. Like I feel like how I used to be and interact in the world is different. And maybe I'm not going to even, even though I just want to have the alcohol or whatever, that I'm, I'm going to go through a period of sobriety and allow myself to transition. Oh, because yeah. I think we often kind of, it's, it's hard to do that. There's a clinging, almost <laughs> like you're speaking to when the Shakti dialed down and transitioning out of that. Transitions are hard to go through yeah. or when we're getting so much out of our life, changing it. And like you're saying too, others who decide to stop using substances and then it means their friends might change or their lifestyle might, might change. It is hard to do. I agree. I totally agree. It's hard to watch it and and be conscious of it also. But I think that's a skill that we need as adults is to be able to do that versus the train wreck that causes everything to explode and forces you to shift. Like, can we shift gracefully? Oh, that is beautifully said. That's another thing I wish somebody would have told me 20 or 30 years ago. It's like, I think, again, I have kind of a mind that's sort of beginning, middle, end. Okay, I've arrived, I'm done. It's like, no, life doesn't work that way. There's many, you know, what you might perceive as new beginnings. And um, <clears throat> I, um, somebody asked me the other day, like, well, what was your wake-up call? How did you, how did you end up in spirituality? And so I think I did it the traditional way, like tremendous pain and suffering, like, came out of nowhere this oppressive fear of death and I I don't know where it came from but I was just terrified and then of course I managed to get divorced be a single dad with custody of kids dig myself into debt to the tune of six hundred and fifty thousand dollars and facing bankruptcy and it was like and up to that point in my life I had um, been very um, highly defended against anything spiritual or religious in nature I kind of lumped them all together and but as a result of all that pain and funny, just prior to that point, I was reading stories of people that kind of way to retreats, like spiritual retreats and have these great transformations. But you know, I wasn't going to do that, but I love the stories. Mm, uh, what was, what, let me tell me more about your resistance, like where that, um, I'm going to use the word disdain, like where that came from, the no. Yeah, well, <clears throat> I think it began with, um, so I was raised Catholic, but we were, I would say, part-time Catholics, not like... Um, you know, super regular fundamentalist Catholics. We would go to church occasionally, and we were going to church one day, and I think I was 14 years old. And uh, in our Catholic church tradition, a a woman had to cover her head when she entered church. Otherwise, it was a sin. Well, one day, my mother's walking to church, and her head's not covered. And I reminded her, hey, Mom, it's a sin. Oh, no, the church changed the mind and decided it wasn't a sin. And I was horrified. (laughs) I was like, I thought God made all the rules. You mean people can make the rules and it can change? And something just switched in me and I became antagonistic towards religion, spiritual practices. I thought everybody's just making it up, you know. In that moment, that was a big one for you. Hmm. Yeah. And so um, it wasn't like I went around, you know, waving signs saying people go to church are stupid. I just wanted nothing to do with it. Yeah, well, you saw behind the veil where prior to that, there was a innocence, right? God God yeah. made this rule. And that's sort God of- God wrote the Bible. That's how we're conditioned as children to believe that this is the word of God. Yeah. And then when you find out it's just humans. Yeah. Just us people making the rules and not always agreeing on them, changing our mind and look at the abortion debate, you know. 
back and forth and back and forth. Okay. So kind of that human element of religion and spirituality is what turned you away from it. I think I had, uh, when I was young, and I'm going to call it the more stereotypical male, I'm going to call it structured sense of reality. Uh, You know, the one that has the plan and executes the plan. And it's like, wait a minute, who, you know? And so, um, and so I think when I was younger, and in fact, part of my journey was <clears throat> in the early days, um, uh, oh, about a year before the onslaught of Kundalini, I started having dreams and I was encouraging the dreams. I was writing down the dreams and I became aware there were two kinds of dreams, but one of them was what I would call of a teaching nature and I would see dreams of my, like an x-ray vision of my inner musculature. And I could see my inner musculature, my, my muscles were all black and white and entwined and it looked painful. And so I'm gonna loosely say I had kind of a black and white view of life and reality. And this whole journey into all things feminine was loosening that black and white grip and that black and white perception on everything. I had another dream just trying to show me a little more. And I saw a little kid's top, like a dreidel spinning on the ground, high speed. And as it's slowing down, I could see that the top was colored black and white and it slows to a stop. I realized the top is white, but the letters in black, W-A-R, are on the top. And so little by little, so you might say in some way I became in touch with my inner teacher or my higher self-wisdom. And it just began the process of, like, John, you have no idea how much you're limiting yourself. Hmm. And, and literally the analogy I started to use later was I hadn't really realized I built sort of a brick wall up around myself. And through the dreams, through the kundalini, through just a whole bunch of things, one by one, you might say I started taking the bricks down, taking the bricks out. Mm-hmm. Taking the prison walls down. Yeah. Yeah. I created the limitations. Now I'm starting to dismantle them. Mm-hmm. So where are you at right now? What's the most alive right now? Well, um, <clears throat> you familiar with Michael Singer, the author? Yeah, I love Michael Singer. Yeah, I do too. And it's so funny. I went... Uh, For those that you don't know, he wrote The Untethered Soul right? and The Surrender Experiment mm-hmm. are the two that he's most known for. Incredible. Yeah. And he's got his kind of like ashrami, I don't know if he still does it, community yep. down in Florida. Well, I went down there in 2018 and I hung out at this little, yeah, it's just a converted house. He calls it the Temple of the Universe. Met a lot of cool people from all over the country there and sat with him. And, you know, I, um, at periods of time in my life, I could feel a sense of energy from people. And I didn't feel anything special in the room. I didn't think his talk was all that special. Um, but this just happens to me sometimes. I, I, it's almost like I hold something in my energetic field and have to go to sleep at night for it to inform me. And so that night I have this dream where I'm on top of this really high hill with Michael. And I go outside to show him some books I've been writing. And this huge wind comes and blows everything away. <laughs> and I'm a little peeved because I'm not feeling that Michael Singer did it. And, um, but then this voice comes to me and it says, some people's service to the world is they are, quote, spiritual house cleaners. And, um, and I, I love the surrender experiment, mostly because, similar to my own book, I like his personal true life stories. I, yeah. The stories just melt my heart. And um, so much know, beauty, just, so much beauty in that book, so I much agree. magic. Yeah, it's one of my I, favorites, just uh, those stories for sure, just filled with possibility. What can happen if you no, trust and let go? Absolutely. So, my, my dalliance with him kind of continues. And you know, if you watched any of his videos or see him in person, he waves his hand up and down the back of his spine, he goes, this is where you are. You're back here. You're the one watching your thoughts, watching your emotions. And so I've been having dreams recently of that vertical pranic tube um, being cleaned out. And ironically, at one point, it's on the ground and I'm digging a little muck out of the end of it. And Michael Singer's just standing over me watching me do it. Hmm. And, um, and this morning I had a dream with him in it and we're sitting in a house 
and he's sitting next to me on a couch and he's just talking to a group of people and um and he's talking about uh because if you remember in his book he talks about some scars various Mm -hmm. wounds or scars that we all carry things that get us triggered um and his, his description is energy that we didn't allow to pass through either because we loved it so much we hung on to it or we were Mm -hmm. you know frightened by it so much Mm -hmm. that we kind of hung on to it you might say yeah that's a great description Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and so anyway he's talking very openly to the group about the things he still trips up over and it was really funny he goes i still have a problem with sex i don't even get the point of it and then the next one he says is masochism, like what's up with that but it was funny because i felt like he was being so open and vulnerable with the group and i i had had this this um this feeling and i've hosted a number of groups over the years where there's the, the catholics have it half right there's something about confession that's really powerful but I don't think it has to be confessed to a priest, but this is that, that releasing of energy, that vulnerability and opening up. And, um, and I'm tying, loosely tying this back to the book. Uh, if you read many lives, many masters that came out a long time ago. Uh, no, I'm not familiar with that one. Beautiful book um, where uh, a psychiatrist started practicing hypnotherapy on a young woman who was, I think 24, 27 year old named Catherine. And, and she would go into light trance and start spewing out all of her past life experiences. And but as she continues to do that, the very problems that she struggled with her whole life started to heal themselves. He goes, I didn't do anything. So put her in, her in a little light trance and let her talk away. And then, you know, a year later, she was all better. And so what I'm stewing on literally this morning is this relationship between you know, making the unconscious conscious, being open and hearted in a vulnerable way about like what triggers you. And even just saying that can begin the process of healing the scars. Um, you know, when my daughter went to Maharishi University, Maharishi had a beautiful description of, says, imagine if you're holding like a nail in your hand and something terrible happens to you and, it, and it, he, he would, you know, it gouges a piece of wood. I mean, it leaves a scar. But as you start to practice more and more, meditate more, and start to heal the wounds. The next crappy thing that happens, it's more like dragging a nail through the sand. It's left a mark, but it's not a scar. And then the next level of consciousness, you might say, is like dragging the nail through the water. It's left a mark, there's ripples, but it quickly returns to stillness. Mm-hmm. And you get to the point where you're dragging the nail through the air, mm-hmm. and then it's gone. Mm-hmm. The so, samskara has lost its power. It doesn't come yes. as deeply. It's not as intense. And it yeah, speak- I think you learn over time how to not create new ones. That's where I think I'm going with it too. Yeah, how to not create new ones. Well, you don't cling and you don't yeah. push things away. Yeah. And you're. it's almost like a the vulnerability of what comes up for me is like truthfulness and honesty. Yeah. And like you're saying about Michael, like sharing that shadow piece that you might, I, I think the other, like I, what's also coming up is shame. The reason that we don't share is because of our feeling of shame. And the antidote to that is vulnerability, which heals the shame, which heals the wounds. Yeah. Yeah. And the very thing you don't want to do. I've done a lot of men's work over the years. And boy, there are a lot of men that carry unbelievably powerful shame for things in their life. Yeah. It's just horrifying for them and for them to open their mouth and be open honest, authentic, and vulnerable about the shame. Mm-hmm. It's a big word for them. Big yeah. word. Yeah. Just when I was flying down to Vegas the other day, I stumbled upon this um, YouTube video, a TED Talk, on a man who was talking about his own porn addiction and that porn is so laden with shame. And in his point of view, in his TED Talk, he felt like the antidote to it was talking about it, that it needs yeah. to be something that's normalized. And he gave uh, analogy to how in the 80s, AIDS was such a taboo yeah. subject and topic of who got it and how. And then there was the young boy from Florida who got it through like a blood transfusion. And then that totally shifted the mindset around how you could transmit AIDS or get AIDS. And yeah. again, just like the speaking of it and the bringing it out to help lessen that really intense energy. 
Man, it's a beautiful thing. You know, when you see somebody that can speak from that undefended, clear, truthful, vulnerable point of view, the energy in the whole room can shift. And it's sort of like that one person gives everybody else in that room permission to speak in the same way. It's like, oh, we're going deep. We're going to be honest here. Yeah, I, it's it's a beautiful thing to witness sometimes. It's like I have groups of people and sometimes when that one person just drops in and is unusually um, fearless about it, it's just amazing how it can shift an entire room and shift an entire conversation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The whole field changes. Yeah. The possibilities now, it's like the limiters come off yeah. that you spoke to before. The walls have come down. Oh, yeah. okay. What what's the, What's possible now? And how can we witness and hold each other through it too? Because there's that, the like extra power of it being witnessed or shared. Yeah. Not that it needs to be, but when it is, it can be exponential. Yeah. Yeah, because sometimes I think the pain of the wound um, is part of it, but it's the ongoing conversation we're having inside ourselves day after day after day that's the real pain. Mm. And to get it out in the open, talk about it, I think it begins to soften that interior inner conversation that so many people have. It's just, you know, or the sense of trying to put a lid down, screw it down so that it doesn't bubble up anymore. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, the, the, uh, the image that comes up for me is like a dial that just gets turned down. As soon as the fear is spoken to and shared, it just totally goes down from like nine to one. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I totally agree. I try in my own life to be able to hold space for that and share what my fears are. And it's it's kind of like a balancing act too, particularly when you're in relationship and you're speaking your fears because you, for me, I'm aware that I don't want it to come across as like blame or pointing the finger yeah. or even like a way of like manifesting, let's say. And so I try to really couch it with like, it's really just helpful for me to say what I'm afraid of in this moment or about this thing to yeah. clear it out. Yeah, in fact, um, I sometimes think uh, the greatest gift a lot of people could give the world, I mean, it's one thing to go like into a men's group and the, and the men are all sharing, it's great, but to do it at home with your, your spouse, your partner, uh, it takes it to a whole new level. And <clears throat> I think there's a lot of, amazing work to be done in relationships out there. I know um, probably 15 to 20 years ago, I met Tom Kenyon, who's a popular sound healer and channeler. And he wrote a really interesting essay that was channeled work with Mary Magdalene. And and, um, and she said the new model for um, relationship uh, was where both partners lay their cards out on the table. And uh, completely, and and that that is a path to enlightenment too. Tradition is done by going off alone, but the more you just open heartedly, revealing like, ah, here's what's going on for me. Here's what I'm chewing on now, you know, and and it's a dance. And he and he, he was funny because before he became this channel or sound healer, he was a psychotherapist, and he said, I'm guessing guessing that 99.5 percent of the people in the world aren't ready for this. It's incredibly difficult, and it only works in a container of mutual trust and mutual appreciation. Hmm. Got that. As a couple, you can do amazing work together. I feel like I'm in a relationship like that. I really do. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm very grateful. I speak my appreciation all the time where we are both doing our work and we know that our practice, we we say we both have a goal of growth. We both both have a goal of growth. Oh, good for you. Yeah, we have a goal of growth. And so then therefore, we can go through and share and lay our cards on the table in service to growth. Yeah, and if it can be done in a way that's not finger pointing. Yeah. It's beautiful, amazing. But it's kind of a habit to, I think, with relationships to fall into kind of finger pointing, blame, victim, perpetrator, you know, and... um, so I think my wife and I do it very well, but we struggle sometimes too. And uh, but I'm blessed. She's a life coach. I've been a life coach for 13 years and so she's a life and relationship coach. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, it seems like you're set up for the ability to do that as well. 
Yeah, I yeah. agree. Which yeah. means in some ways too, it can feel sometimes like you're always microprocessing. But <laughs> <laughs> that way it's you're true. always just keeping the channel clear. Yeah. You know, it's almost like brushing your teeth every day. We yeah. don't stop cool. brushing our teeth just because we did. So the cleanup, yeah. the cleanup is always happening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, even again, just the other day with my partner, he said, well, I don't want to do this thing because I don't want to upset you. And I said, well, if I do get upset, I, I already know that that's me. Those are, these are my triggers. It's not about you. So yeah. you should feel safe in doing this thing because... I'm in a good place and I don't think I'm going to get triggered, but I know if I do, it's not you. Yeah. 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 It's taken me a long time to get there. <laughs> well, I'm a little older than you and I'm still working on it too, Rana, So We have time, right? Nothing but time. Nothing but time. And yeah. that's often what I think of more recently too about relationships is marriage or partnership or whatever you want, might want to call it, it's the commitment to the other person that I'm going to be here while you work on your stuff. Yeah. And I will hold space for you for that, that we're yeah. in this together. I'm you, You're going to be here while I do my, me, you do you. And we can have that foundation of safety. I'm not going to bail just because it gets hard. Yeah. That's beautiful. I remember Tom Kenyon saying the beautiful thing about doing exactly what you talked about, where it feels like there's that constant microprocessing. And in a way, there's constant growth too, right? Yeah. <clears throat> he goes, I don't know if you experience it this way, but in a way, he says that can make a relationship be enlivening year after year after year, day after day, because for most couples, they fall into sort of an unconscious pattern. And, and um, that sort of vitality and aliveness falls out of the relationship. And so while this is a more challenging path, it also is a more enlivening path too. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, we've been together five years and our relationship feels so alive, so yeah. alive, more so than when I was married before and we had gotten into patterns and weren't able to do the necessary cleanup. I mean, a lot of it was me and him and just the feeling of safety, right? That you'd have to have in a yeah. relationship, but you can only get there on your own too. And yeah. in partnership, it's all mixed together. But <laughs> the feeling of aliveness that can be present and stay. Yeah. Yeah. And in my coaching too, I see so many people that have that feeling of disconnection from their partner. Yeah. And it's sad too, because they want the connection. Oh, so they desperately. Get it or to restore it, you know? Yeah, and it takes both of them being willing participants too. Because yeah. that can happen also. One's, one's wanting and the other doesn't quite know yet or hasn't gotten there yet or is too defended, really, too walled yeah. off, yeah. like you described. I remember Adya Shante talking about um, <clears throat> being um, truly truthful, honest, and authentic with your partner. And, you know, he said it's a hard thing to teach because people tend to go, well, you're a freaking bastard. I always wanted to say that. He goes, no, 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 that's not what I meant about, like, what are you feeling inside? What's going on inside you being really open and authentic? And there was one couple that um, went to his workshop, went home, and for the first time in their entire life, were open and honest with each other. And they stayed up talking, like, from 10 o'clock till 3 in the morning, I think. And they said it was like the most beautiful thing that ever happened. And he goes, I don't know if we're going to still stay together or not, because we've never talked to each other that way before. And it's an extraordinary thing. And uh, it is an extraordinary thing, which can be at that place where you feel that sense of safety and you can speak in that way with your partner. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. a lot of what you're revealing, too, are those shadow pieces. Yeah. What you might feel shame or fear that you the like shame gets to like I'll be cast out of the tribe like something that that's so deeply scary that the, the thing that I love the most this relationship is going to go away if yeah. I tell the truth about x yeah or you're yeah. living in it and still in the relationship but it's deadened it's not alive anyway yeah. but you're yeah. clinging to it without being truthful 
Yeah, it's interesting. He called that little essay the alchemy of relationship. And I thought that was a great title. Mm, yeah, how it can transform. Yeah. Through honest talking. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes we need somebody to help us with that. A counselor, a mediator, another presence, or to learn tools also. I mean, yeah, I would say not sometimes we need that. We often always need that to begin. Yeah, I think people doing relationship work, you know, what I I just loosely call um, consciousness and relationship work are doing really valuable work in the world today. That are helping folks with that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there need to be more really gifted, skillful people out there. People yeah. ask me all the time for a referral, and I'm like, I don't know. So if you're <laughs> out there and you work with relationships in this way, let me know, and I will put you on my list to refer people to. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what else, John, as we're finishing up today? It's been such a treat to talk with you. Yeah, very very enjoyable talking with you and meeting you, Rada. Like I said, I... I I've looked at your picture of you and Ram Das three or four times already. It just always makes my heart melt. So I was really excited to meet you. Mm. <clears throat> I have it right over here. I'm glancing just uh, off to my left and I'm seeing the same picture. I've got it printed out on my bookshelf so I can get that. Love uh, he's bomb. just a big love, isn't he? Wasn't <laughs> he? <laughs> yes, isn't he? Yeah. 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 Um, let's see, I don't think I have anything else. Um, yeah, just. I said, uh, Synchronicity of Love is my first book and um, 119 mostly true stories. I wrote it like you talked about uh, earlier in our talk that I I wanted the kind of book because it's the kind of book I like. It was to sit next to the bed and you could just randomly open to it and read a story. My publisher had me redo it in a way where it was loosely chronological because some people like to start beginning, middle, end. And um, but originally, I tried to write 119 short stories that were standalone stories. So I kind of kind of did both. Was 119 a number you were aiming to hit? No, I just ran out of stories and decided that was too many pages. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, Okay. And I, you know, we had talked about the surrender experiment and. I learn best from the true stories and personal journeys of other people. I, I not to take anything away from uh, books on practices, um, but I, I just, you know, something about Michael Singer, uh, the book that opened me up, ironically, uh, at the very beginning was Michael Crichton's book, Travels. And mm. a lot of people aren't familiar with that book and don't know that he wrote essentially an autobiography in, I think, in the 80s, and, mm. uh, and he, um, part of the reason he wrote that book was um, by the time he was 30 years old, he'd achieved every goal he ever set for himself, and he had achieved a remarkable number of things by age 30 and fell into a full-on depression, didn't know what he was going to do for the rest of his life, and about that time, I think he ran into an essay called Direct Experience, where the author said, it's amazing how many beliefs we have about ourselves in the world that we really got from other people or something we read. And and the author was saying, people don't go out to, and experience things for themselves and then decide. And so that was the basis for travels. All the things that he didn't know about or were highly defended against. And like me, he was highly defended against psychic stuff spiritual stuff, spiritual experiences. He went out to experience them on his own. Turned out he was very psychic, like unbelievably so, and traveled all around the world to places that he thought he knew all about, but didn't really. And and I, in a lot of ways, I tried to model my life for the last 20 years after that. Like, I'm not going to take what somebody else says about something to be true. I want to go experience it for myself. Yes. And the result is this book. Yes, beautiful. Well, I can't wait to read Travels now and finish The Synchronicity of Love. Yeah. (laughs) And I agree with you. I get the most out of real-world human experiences, too. That's what I'm always drawn towards, even with, like, like again, like flying and traveling place to place where you've got all the movie options in front of you. I always go to the documentaries. Yeah. I'm like, I want to watch about a real person's life versus these crap formulaic inane stories that are mostly out there now. (laughs) There's so many bad shows and movies, but a documentary will often never let you down. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, it sounds like we both share the, um, you know, the sort of um, the mix of spiritual and human. And so there's a part of me that just loves spiritual experiences, but there's part of me that's very grounded human too. And, and those were also my favorite stories was watching Michael Singer go through his transformations, but his inner mind arguing and, you know, and, you know, learning to surrender when his mind wanted to go. He said, it's my inner mind voice was going nuclear and mm. Michael Crichton has stories about meeting psychics and them saying, you are really psychic. Oh, well, all right. That's definitely not true. Only to find out much later, he very much was. And, mm. and, um, so, yeah, again, those are my favorite stories. The ones Ram Dass that, being similar, too, in his teachings. Ram Dass and his teachings yeah. being very transparent to his own life and struggles while teaching on spiritual pr principles, but through the mechanism of this is what's going on in my life and how human I am and what I'm struggling with. So I relatable. agree, and I forgot. I totally love that part of being here now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I read the first third of that book because, you know, it's three parts. Mm -hmm. I read that first third of that book probably 30 times. Mm. And the middle read? part I like, the cookbook at the back I like, but uh -huh. it's the human, it's his journey that I always like the most. Have you read Love Everyone? Uh, is that his book? It's stories of Maharaji, of Neem Karoli Baba. I think it's written by Parvati Marcus. So it's a collection of real life stories of those that spent time with Ramdas's teacher, Maharaji. Oh. So it's their real stories of him and the miracles and the beauty that he worked in their life. It's one of my favorite books. Again, similar, it's just people's stories. So if you haven't read Love Everyone. I haven't read it, but guess what the next book on my list is going to be? <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's Love Everyone. Yeah, no, I, that sounds right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much, John. I've really enjoyed this conversation immensely. I love dipping into these deeper, wider, broader, lighter, more fulfilling topics. And thank you for popping the little cherry for me to get back into the podcast zone because something I love so much, but just had sat down for the past few months. Oh, I didn't know I did that, but I'm glad I did. <laughs> And people can find you at John Lada. Yeah, uh, my website is John David Lada, and the last name is spelled L-A-T-T-A. So JohnDavidLada.com. And my book is The Synchronicity of Love: Stories That Heal, Transform, and Awaken. It's available everywhere, and Amazon. Okay, great. Well, thank you again, and I look forward to more with you in the future. Thank you so much, Rada. 